Oh, good morning. Uh, my day job is a, uh, is a high school teacher. As a teacher, um, I'm always uh, coming in contact with um, uh, statistics that try to talk about you know, the current generation, um, comparing it to previous generations, and, and things uh, of that nature to try to maybe figure out uh, people. And um, so one of the things that, as I was going through that, um, something came across, uh, that there are certain trends um, that we see you know, throughout society. And one of the ones that was kind of interesting to me was a recent trend, uh, I guess not recent, but a trend um, looking at, uh, at different a- aspects of big areas of commitments. Um, one of those, if you look at marriage uh, and how committed uh, the current generation is um, to previous generations, you see uh, interesting uh, correlations. One of those is... Uh, in 1960, so several generations back, um, the percent of people that were married at age 32 was 65%. That's a pretty, pretty high percentage. Almost two-thirds of the population were married by the time they got to age 32. We look at what that current generation who are 32 right now, it's uh, down to 26%. You look at uh, job statistics and you see similar trends where uh, there is an increase in um, how often people switch jobs. There is an increase in job uh, dissatisfaction. Um, there is a uh, decrease in job loyalty or trusting those that are, are um, you know, in uh, you know, places of, of, um, of managerial roles. Uh, and even in religious uh, circles, there are more people that are tending to check the box of no religious affiliation than becoming affiliated with one particular religion. And as you try to kind of look at this, these ideas and these trends and try to assess, you know, what is the reason for that? Some say it's, it's a fear of commitment. Um, and I think much of it has to do with when people are faced with big decisions in life, um, it is easier not to commit to anything than to commit to something at all. Um, I know from personal experience, uh, you know, my, my wife and I faced that in a, in a small role. Um, I had a fear of committing to baby names. Um, I, I just couldn't, you know, I didn't want to talk about it, you know, for at least six months into the pregnancy because they would have this name. Um, one of our children, though, our second, was born six weeks early and totally destroyed my, my planning. Um, whereas he did not have a name, so in the NICU, he was, he was in the NICU for four weeks, we would hold him. We had two names, and we were like, are you this, or are you this, you know? And um, it's not a bad way to come up with a decision, like after the fact. You're like, you more fit this profile than, than something else. Um, but when it comes to those big decisions, you know, the uh, current, current generation, and again, probably resonates with all of us, sometimes we just don't want to make a decision at all. Right? Sometimes if the decision is all or nothing, then nothing wins out. Um, but we know that we can't go through life consistently choosing nothing. Right? In matters of faith, choosing nothing is not the best option. Choosing the path of least resistance often leads to a lack of satisfaction and also frustration. So today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that speaks of the Christian's commitment to his or her faith and really what is uh, required of those who claim to follow Jesus Christ. So I'd like you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. 
Um, and as you turn there, just real briefly, First Thessalonians is uh, a letter that is written to those who are, um, who are facing persecution. When Paul went to Thessalonica, he preached the gospel and, and uh, people were converted. And shortly afterwards, he, he and uh, his ministry companions were run out of town. Um, and so there were those that, uh, that you know, Paul had spent a couple weeks with uh, teaching about uh, aspects of the faith, but then he couldn't go back there. And so he has to write them a letter not shortly, not too far after he had left. And uh, he wants to, to talk about to them, you know, uh, about urging to stay the course. And so that's how he really ends his letter. And that's where we're going we're gonna to look at, at how he ends his letter. And outlines for them really what are the expectations in living in a world where people are hostile to what you believe. And I f- hope we can find some sort of connection to what, what Paul speaks of. And we're going to see two things in the verses that we're going to look at. We're going to look at verses 14 through 24. Um, but we're going to find two things. That one, we, we have a fil- fully committed calling. And that is the expectation and obligation that is laid upon us. A fully committed calling. Uh, but we're also going to see that th- we also have a fully committed Savior um, that will help us to fulfill the calling that we have. So as Paul closes his letter, he gives his final appeal, and starting in, in verse 14 is where we're going to pick that up. And he says, We urge you, brothers, I want you to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks to all in uh, all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So in this passage, you know, we find that Paul is describing a fully committed calling uh, in these first eight verses. You know, Paul speaks in, in emphatic terms, and much of what he says is similar to what he says in other closing letters, but he kind of packages it here in Thessalonica as kind of something to spur them on, especially in the situation he is. And he wants to convey the importance of living the Christian faith to its fullest. What he describes is, is something that is not half-hearted, something that is not a part-time endeavor, or something that is to be done when we feel like it. Right? It is a total commitment. The words that Paul uses are all-encompassing. Right? In verse 14, he says, be patient with all. He later says that uh, no one should repay evil for evil. He says good should be sought always to everyone. He says we should be rejoicing always, praying without stopping, giving thanks in all circumstances. In verse 21, he says, test everything and abstain from every form of evil. And so whether it is in the positive, where he says all, always, everyone, always, all circumstances, everything or every form, or in the negative, to no one or without ceasing, What Paul says is to be done in all times, in all places, and with everyone. Doing everything, never stopping, never ceasing, never giving in. And really what Paul asks for is complete and utter commitment to doing the will of God. He says that in verse 18, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Yes, all of you in Thessalonica... And by extension, all of us who call on the name of Jesus Christ. Now what Paul is asking, or really urging them, is nothing new. 
What Paul asks is what Jesus asks. A full and total commitment to Christ and his leadership in your life. So I'd like real quick to turn back to Luke 14 to see if we call on the name of Jesus and follow Jesus, what Jesus asks for those who would want to be his followers. And he has been teaching for some time and he's been doing miracles for some time and demonstrating his power and his proficiency in speaking about God. And that a great crowd has gathered. And in verse 25, we see, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, He said, says in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is addressing great crowds. And when you address great crowds and you want to appeal to the masses, there are a couple things that you would, should do if we're going to gain momentum and great throngs of people. First, you want to keep it positive. And second, you want to highlight what's appealing and hide what is unappealing. All right? That's why people love weddings, because it's very fun and happy, and when the couple leaves, they ride off into the sunset, and that's like the last image that you think. And so weddings are fun. But when we look at like the day's events, and especially turn on the news, sometimes it's not so fun. Especially if we think about the things that have occurred in the last couple weeks. And uh, instead of our brains swirling with endorphins of happiness, we're brought to the sober reality of really the world that we live in. But Jesus, when he sees his crowd, right, he gives them the sobering thoughts of the cost to follow him. Right? Up to this point in his ministry, Jesus was gaining in popularity because of the things he was doing and because of the things he was saying and who he was saying those things to. So Jesus wants to stop and pause and take the time to clear some things up. Right? He says, following me is not all about the miracles. It's not about the healings. It's not about driving out demons. It's not about mass feedings. It's not even about going toe-to-toe with your religious establishment. He says there is a cost. He gets in terms of basic economics, right? There is no such thing as a free lunch. And to be a true disciple of Jesus, it takes a full commitment. It is a total surrender to him. And there will be a cost. He says, first, it might cost you a relationship, Right? That's why Jesus said you must be willing to give up your parents, your siblings, your wife. He says even your life itself for his sake. And that is a huge step. That's a step where most people are willing to walk away and, and say, I'm not ready for that. 
Jesus isn't saying that these things are going to happen, but he says you must be willing to do so. Because if I tell you to follow me, it may cost you some of these things, and your allegiance needs to be with me and not something else. There is no divided loyalty when it comes to following Christ. And that leads to the second illustration that he says. You know, he says, partly following Jesus is like a man who partially finishes a tower. Nobody looks at an incomplete building and marvels, right? It always looms with questions. I remember when we lived in California, uh, we would always take walks around our neighborhood. And a couple of blocks down the street from us, there was this apartment complex that was nearly finished, but just wasn't. It was like almost like the parking deck below it needed to be finished off. And for months, it just sat there. And I thought, you know, we managed an apartment complex, and I thought, you know, I'm always thinking dollars and cents, you know, how much, you know, could this be making at this time? But, like, for some reason, it lay dormant for months and perhaps even years uh, that this project just sat there. You know, they were close, but just couldn't push it over the finish line. And you just kind of, I always thought, you know, what happened? You know, did somebody get sick? Did he run out of money? And so that's, that's kind of the things that happen when you see something that is incomplete, Right? And so that's what Jesus says. He says, the man who has an incomplete tower is like the owner of the vacant apartment building that we saw. Right? And the person who partially follows Jesus is the person who perhaps started off in the right direction and then got sidetracked along the way. He says, the man who has an incomplete tower is to be mocked. And the man with partial faith deserves the same. Jesus does not want that for his disciples. Because partly following Jesus is really not following Jesus at all. I mean, partially following Jesus doesn't even make sense. When a student of mine partially follows the directions, usually the end result is bad. And Jesus illustrates that when he then talks about his third illustration about going to war. He says a king just can't go to war partially. He's either all in with the battle or he makes peace. So he has to make one choice or the other. He can't go to war, just try it out, see if it doesn't work for him and say, like, my bad, right? He's already either committed his men and his nation to this war, or he has committed to a terms of peace to avoid this war. And in the same way, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus partially. And what does Jesus say, concluding that in verse 33? He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, right? I just love how Jesus is direct and he is clear, right? He does not pull a a bait and switch and he does not offer the world and then like obscure the, the fine print, right? Several times throughout his ministry, loud and clear, Jesus reminds the people that there is a cost to following him. Now, my focus this morning is to those who have already, uh, weighed that cost and have made this commitment, If you are here, right, and you have not made the commitment to follow Christ, you may be wondering why it would be worth following Jesus if it costs so much. Now, there are many reasons that Jesus is the best choice to make when you compare it to all other offers that you have. We're not going to go there this morning, but I just urge you to do that on your own. But what we will see is that Jesus, he does not ask anything of his disciples that he wasn't willing to do and more. Jesus asked us to be willing to give up our lives, but he demonstrated it by giving up his own life so that we 
could be saved. So for those who know that Jesus is worth it, and that have given up everything for Christ, it's good to kind of go back and remember, what was that commitment? What was that decision? What was that you know, time in my life where finally I gave my life to Christ and the Lord opened up my eyes, and so now I'm a disciple of his? What is it that we've signed up for? Right? Understanding that at the outset, the terms of the agreement, we then can see what Paul says about being a follower of Christ and what are the things that he urges those who are followers of Christ to do in relationship to one another, right? Because first, following Christ means being all in, totally committed, surrendered to what Jesus wants for our life all the way up until the end. And as followers of Jesus, there are high expectations. And so the first thing we see is that there is a fully committed calling. If you want to go back to 1 Thessalonians, and we'll go through briefly what some of these things are. Now, we're just going to hit the tops of the trees. This would be great to do an in-depth study and spend like several weeks on several of these things. But I just kind of want to hit the highlight and get the big picture for us today. And so the first thing we see is that a fully committed calling means a commitment to seeking the betterment of others. In verse 14, Paul urges his fellow followers of Christ to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So broadly, what is Paul, uh, what is it that Paul is urging? You know, he's urging first, you know, you need to be involved in the lives of the people that are around you in order that you can help them out in some particular way. And you must be intimately involved with those around you. To know what each other's needs are and being able to respond to those needs takes relationship and it takes a commitment to others. So how could you admonish or encourage or help those who are in need if you don't know if those needs exist or what those particular struggles may be? You need to know what they need so you can then respond accordingly. For instance, you would not want to admonish someone who should be encouraged or vice versa. But no matter who it is, Paul says to be patient with all. Patience is one of those attributes of God um, that we see vividly in Scripture. Sometimes God's judgment is on display, but more times than not, God's patience is demonstrated with his people, especially when they mess up. And we are to do the same. Many times we're quick to judge, but how often are we quick to be patient? If many of us were honest, and I'm including myself in here, We have a hard time with patience. There are some commandments, some things that we're asked, do not murder. All right, that's easy, right? Do not steal, okay? I don't have a problem with that. Be patient with all. That's where we just have to pause and say, hold on a minute, you know, because we can think of a lot of people in our lives, you know, what about that guy who, Paul says, yes, that that guy. Well, you know, there's that coworker, she's just really, and Paul says, Yes, yes, she's, she's included in that one. Well, what about one of my children who lately just knows how to push my buttons? And Paul's saying, yes, yeah, especially that one, right? It takes patience, especially if we're going to be involved with somebody who's gone astray or he needs encouragement or he needs help. And it takes patience to encourage somebody who's feeling down. It takes patience to admonish somebody who just needs to be corrected, And it takes patience to help those who are weak, because helping those who are weak takes time, and patience is all about the time involved 
in the lives of others. But Paul, on behalf of Jesus, says to do it. Because Jesus has been all of these things and more to us. We've all needed to be admonished. We've all needed to be encouraged. We've all needed to be helped. And the Lord has been patient with each one of us. Right? If we took an inventory of where we're at spiritually, we all should hopefully conclude that we are not where we should be or even could be. But Jesus is patiently working on us day by day, year by year. Right? He, is, he is working off the rough edges and smoothing them out. And he's patiently shaping us into the people who he wants us to be. Jesus is fully committed to our betterment. And we have a fully committed calling that seeks the betterment of others. All right, second, we have a fully committed calling to being kind to all people. So related to being patient, you know, Paul, he turns that patient into positive action to those outside of those, just beyond those who need help. And Paul first says that we are not to pay evil for evil. Right? Often our first inclination when somebody uh, wrongs us is to respond in kind, either in our mind or actually in our actions. In a situation where you're threatened, you either fight or you flight. But Paul says we are to do neither. Right? First, don't fight back, at least not in the sense of doing harm to somebody else. What about that neighbor of mine who, yeah, yeah, okay, so same thing, right? Paul's, Paul's getting to him too, right? Even the guy on the highway who pulls in front of you when you were just patiently using all of the, obeying the law, and they cut you off, right? You know, Paul reminds us, okay, I need patience with this person. I need self-control. And so I won't fight back. Okay, so I won't fight, but maybe I'll just avoid the person, right? And Paul says, no, 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 that's, that's not good either. Because he's not finished. Not only do we not do evil, but what does he say? He says, but always seek good to one another and to everyone. It doesn't cut it just if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Paul says, if you can't say anything nice, think of something nice to say. For some reason, revenge is like this sweet notion to us. Whenever we watch movies or hear some sort of story where there has been a victim and then there is, you know, vengeance taken upon the perpetrator, there's some sort of justice that's vindicated in our hearts, right? But Paul says this isn't really how life works out, right? We, when we are wronged, we aren't looking for payback, we don't typically resort, right, that to ourselves, but we'll cheer along, those who do. And Paul says, I want you to check that emotion. In fact, just kick it to the curb. He says, you want revenge? Be good to that person. That's the sweet revenge you can find. Well, what if that person has not really been good to me? Well, it doesn't matter. Because their actions should have no bearing on our actions. Let me repeat that. Their actions should have no bearing On our actions. In fact, their actions should encourage us to treat them as Christ has treated us. Did Christ seek revenge on those who falsely accused him? Did he insult those who sent him to the cross? No. What did he do? He prayed for them, right? He asked God to forgive them. And why was that? Because he says that they do not know what they were doing. If they truly understood, they would not have done it. All right, any time somebody mistreats you, 
they do not know what they're doing to you. And the same can be said anytime you misread someone else, you do not know what you are doing to them. For if you truly know the hurt you were doing, you wouldn't do it. You would restrain yourself. And if they truly knew the pain that they were causing, they would restrain themselves. Right? Because we all desperately need Christ. We all desperately need to be reminded how desperately we need him. And anyone who has grown up in the church knows what it's like to try to be good. Right? You know the words to say. You know the things to do around your parents, around your church friends, all of that. But you know that deep down that you just can't be good on your own. Or at least good enough to be worthy of Christ. But Christ says that you are worthy. And it's nothing that you have done, nothing that I have done, but you can be worthy because Christ is worthy and was willing to give himself up for you. You can be made worthy through him. So Christ is fully committed to being kind to us even when we don't deserve it, especially when we don't deserve it. And likewise, we have a fully committed calling to be kind to others. Not ignoring others, not seeking revenge, which sometimes deep down puts a damper on my cynicism. But we are to respond in kindness. So far, these two things, being patient with others and helping out others, and being kind to others, especially when they mistreat you, like that can take an entire lifetime Right to work on. But Paul isn't done. And so what's next on his list? A third thing he says is that, there is a, that we have a fully committed calling to having a joyful attitude. He starts off in verse 16. He says, rejoice always. Doesn't Paul know it's football season? How can we rejoice always? Right? We know that misery loves company. That's just kind of how we've been hardwired. Right? It's hard to rejoice all the time. That's why so many people try to find happiness in a bottle or in pills or in some sort of relationship because temporarily when things are feeling bad that you can fill the void with something else, right? We can't make ourselves be happy all the time. But that's not really what Paul is getting at. He says to rejoice means to know that God is in control even when we are not and especially when we are not. Right? This, this past week was, was a tough week. We had uh, some friends visiting us from Jacksonville. Uh, and in case they're listening, that wasn't what made it tough. Right? They were coming from Jacksonville. And so because they were, you know, uh, the storm was coming up Florida, we were continuously watching you know, the weather, that slow-moving storm as it finally left Cuba and then made it to Florida. And then um, for them, it seemed as if it was going to miss Jacksonville completely, but then turned and uh, they got a lot of the brunt of the storm. And so then it's keeping your eyes on what happened and the destruction and all of those things, right? And so you saw how much destruction there was that went on, right? And, and so many people are still feeling the effects of that even now. But even in the midst of all of that chaos, right? And each day you're finding like more and more difficulties. And even in the aftermath of, of some of it, not just during the storm, but the result of the storm, the things that have occurred. But in the midst of it all is God, right? Paul tells us to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing. Now, how can we find joy in the face of life's hardships? 
It's by seeking God, right? Not just seeking him only in those times, but also staying in constant contact with our creator, right? There should never be periods in our lives when we are not considering and consulting God's insight into the choices that we make. And then he says, be thankful, right? To take stock of what God has provided and to praise him for it. Not focusing on the things that we don't have, but focusing on the things that God has blessed us with. Right? There's, we know, though, that there are always times when we don't. We're not thankful. We don't pray. And um, I've asked myself this often. Like, why, why don't I do these things? Um, if I've counted up the costs and I've considered that Christ is the greatest treasure for me and I've given my life to him, then why do I find myself not rejoicing? Um, why do I find myself not praying and not giving thanks? And there's a myriad of answers to those questions, right? There's things that we could say we're either too self-focused. Sometimes it's because we don't prioritize. Um, we don't make the time. We don't allow for the time for, for this to happen, right? And so on. But I'm still finding myself asking the question, why? Right? If Jesus is my all, then why do, I, why do I act sometimes that he's not? Paul says, rejoice always, pray always, give thanks always. My own failures in these three areas are reasons that doubt creeps in. And it's here where we um, have to stop and think about what it was that got us to that point. Paul says that doing these things are God's will, right? We don't do them because of obligation, but it's God's will that we should do these things. There's not many places in Scripture that something is so crystal clear in regards to God's will. If there's one thing that many Christians ask is, what does God want for my life? And right here, we see it. Should I take this job? Should I go move to this particular city? Should I go on this vacation? Should I ask this person out? Right? There's plenty of choices that we have to make. It would be great if we had more certainty in life in light of all these things. Sometimes God gives us over to the choices, you know, allows us to make the decision. But Paul gives us with certainty what God's will is. is to rejoice always, to pray always, and to give thanks always. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So why would God give us things to do that we just can't do? Sure, we can rejoice a lot, but always. We can pray a lot, but can we pray without ceasing? We can give thanks, but sometimes we're just miserable people, right? Sometimes it feels good to just complain, even momentarily. But Jesus didn't, right? He often prayed to the Father, even though he was God himself, He never complained. He always had a joyful attitude, right? It doesn't mean that Jesus was annoyingly chipper. That's sometimes what we think about when it means to be like joyous all the time. But it's a rock-solid confidence in the plans and purposes of God. No matter what happens in our life, we can always count on God. Even if those plans and purposes go against our plans and purposes. All right, take a deep breath. Go to the last one. Our calling is a fully committed calling to discerning what glorifies God. 
Paul says to not quench the spirit. Um, the word quench is a word that means to douse or dampen. It's often used when it's talked about in terms of a fire to make it weaker. It says if you throw water on top of a fire, you quench that fire or dampen that fire. And he says, likewise, I do not want you to dampen or quench the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to do things that grieve God or that weaken your conscience. The things that will not allow God to speak clearly to you in the times that you need it. I want you to allow God's Spirit to guide you. And so then we have to stop and ask, well, how does God guide us in the Spirit? And we see it through His Word. It's the clear teaching of God's will that guides us. This is why Paul says, do not despise prophecies. The prophecies are words from God. Is it a voice that you hear? Or is it someone who says that they have a particular gift? No. These are unnecessary because we have God's voice that can speak to us clearly through the speaking of his word. As clearly as we can read it is as clear as we can hear how God speaks. All right, hearing God's word this morning and listening to the explanation of these verses, right? This is prophecy. And if the Spirit is prompting you to think about certain things in your life, do not suppress it and pray for God to give you the wisdom to act upon those things. And as you weigh decisions in light of counsel, you hear from others, Paul says, test everything and hold what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So whatever it is that we read, whatever it is that we hear, he says, I want you to filter that out. I want you to discern what is good, and then, you know, meaning what glorifies God, and I want you to do that. And discern what is evil, and don't do it. It's pretty simple. Do what is good, don't do what is evil. But the thing that we need to do is constantly be testing everything. And we need to be training ourselves in order to do that. Right? Often we just kind of passively move from one activity to the next. We make decisions, we make choices that should more often involve discerning what God's will is, which points us back to the previous point of praying to God and asking him for wisdom. Sometimes it's only after the fact that we do something that we conclude that we should have prayed about it or sought godly counsel or searched God's word more deeply. But we don't. Often we just move from one thing to the next. And I think even in an age of technology, this is something that is even more critical. Often we read what comes in our inbox or comes on our feeds, and we click on videos and we watch these things. And it's first, we might think that this is something that is going to be edifying. And we have to pause it and say, you know, make the determination that I'm just going to stop and say this is something that I don't need to do. This is something that is not glorifying to God, and so I'll cut this out of my life. And if it is glorifying to God, those are the things that we can encourage others with. And sometimes we are exposed to things because we live in a world that's tainted with sin, that has a mixture, right? We discern some of the things that are good instead of tossing it all out with some of the things that are bad. But we continue to need to be training ourselves how to do that to looking at things and discerning. Is this something that I should continue watching? Is this something I should continue reading? Is this something I should continue doing and make those decisions? 
in light of, is this glorifying to God or is this something that is not? We need to discern what feeds our hearts to live more like Christ or what stains our soul and discourages us from that. We need to look onto the things that help us grow in Christ and to be more like him because ultimately that is our goal. And Jesus was fully committed to discerning what glorified the Father. And so we have a commitment and a calling to discern what glorifies God as well. And so if you look at the list and you think of all these things that, that we've kind of gone through this morning, it's, it's pretty daunting. Um, if I were to look back on this past week and just assess like, how well I'm doing, I would say I'm not really doing that great. Um, was I looking always to help others and being patient while doing so? Was I kind to everyone, even to those who were not kind to me? Did I have a joyful attitude? Did I seek the Lord's direction? And did I discern what glorifies God in all that I do? Right? I know these are what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm just not doing it. And so I go back to that question, so why do I fail so often? And again, there are reasons. There are things that are disciplines in your life that can help you to not go off the rails. But even if you're doing those things, immediately after you read your Bible, immediately after you have your time with the Lord, you can then stumble into sin. We all know that that is just part of the Christian walk here while we're on this side of eternity. So why does God ask us to do things that we can't do? I think it's partly because we can't do them, right? And not being able to do these things continually reminds us that we can't do them. I mean, it sounds redundant, doesn't it? Right? It reminds us that in the end, we are not independent, autonomous creatures. Right? We have jobs. We can cook our own meals. We can drive our own cars, at least for now. But when we see things like these big storms that go looming over the horizon, we have to pause and we have to realize and stop and check ourselves and say, you know what? God is, in, is much bigger than these storms And if these storms make us halt where we're at, God can do the same. And we realize and remember and remind ourselves that we can't do these things on our own. We can't seek the betterment of others. And we can't be joyous all the time, right? Even sometimes we fall short in discerning what is right and what is wrong. And so we go back and and we say, Lord, please help me. And that is a wonderful place to be. Because we know that when we're on our own, if you go back to Genesis 6-5, when God just said, all right, I want you to populate the world and you're on your own. Now what he's described about mankind was that there was evil in their hearts continuously. But the failure that we face ultimately drives us back to God and it reminds us that we need him, which is a great place to be. So while we look at the list and say, man, this seems like a recipe for failure, it is. If we are doing it on our own. That's the, that's the caveat, if we are doing it on our own. But Paul doesn't conclude his letter that way. He's, he sums it up and says, we have a fully committed Savior. Verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
right? All the aspects that we've talked about highlight the commitment that being a follower of Christ demands, right? We are all in. We're all in for following Christ, and it doesn't just stop there. We're all in for our commitment to how Christ wants us to live. We have a fully committed calling, right? It's a calling. It's a higher purpose. It's a goal that we have been asked to follow, And when we've talked about each aspect of that commitment, right, I've brought us back to the fact that we can respond to those commitments, right, knowing that Jesus Christ has done the same, right? We can be patient because Jesus is patient with us. And so by Jesus being patient with us, we have now the the, um, ability and also the example to follow. But that's not the whole picture, right? We have seen that we can't do this on our own, and if we do it on our own, we fail. And that failure is actually good when it drives us back to God. But Paul says in verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That word sanctify, right? the goal, what Paul's urging, is to make holy or to be set apart. And we know that we can't make ourselves holy, that that is the business that only God can do. Only God can make us holy. That is why we need Jesus. But Paul continues the all-in language by saying, I want you to be sanctified completely. Right? His prayer is that God would make us fully holy. Once a person follows Jesus, he is made holy. He is set apart for this work. Right? But we are not able to know that we are not able to do all that God desires. Right? We mess up and we sin. But if we look over time, right, that, that goal is to becoming more and more holy and to becoming more and more like Christ, who was fully man and completely holy. And even though we may be well short of looking like Christ, that is the goal nonetheless. But who makes this possible, right? If we've established that we can't do it ourselves, who makes it possible? God alone, right? It's the God of peace can do what we can't. And Paul continues saying, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He's echoing Jesus' commandment that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, right? Which signifies your total self, your total personhood. And he applies this further, Paul does, that you should be blameless or free from sin in your entire spirit, your entire soul, and your entire body, that all parts of you would be made righteous. Paul's hope is that you would be blameless when Christ finally returns to see his bride. When Christ comes back for his people, may we be ready and prepared for him to take us home. Again, who is responsible for this? Paul answers in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Christ will do it. He is not only your savior, but the one who fully will accomplish changing you into the person that he wants you to be. And Paul makes it emphatic by saying that he will surely do it. Now there is a tension that exists in the Christian faith, right? And there's many tensions, actually. One of them is that we are responsible for our own sin in this life, but only Christ can do something about it. So we're responsible, but he's the only one that can take care of it. 
That's the gospel. But in regards to our calling as followers of Christ, right, we are called to be fully committed to helping others, being kind, having joyful attitudes, and discerning what glorifies God, but only Christ can help us do it if we allow him to do it. So as we close, I just want to challenge you, and I challenge myself in this as well. I've got a head start because I've been thinking about this for a little bit, right? But I want you to look at that list and just pinpoint one thing where you feel that the Lord is saying, you haven't just surrendered all of that to me, right? There's one thing in your life that you just continually, you know, go back to as needing to, again, uh, smooth out those rough edges. And I want you to think, what is stopping you from whatever that thing is? What's stopping you from just committing that over to Christ and to trusting him, to allow him to work in you, to move closer to that goal of being more like him so that when he returns, right, you are more like him than how you were before you called on him in the first place. Now, there may be more than one, but just start with one and see what God does next. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. Um, first, that you call every person to call in the name of Christ. And that you are clear that this calling is free to everyone, but it is something that is costly and that we must be willing to sacrifice our own desires and sacrifice so much. And even beyond that, as we walk the Christian walk, Lord, that you've called us to, um, to so many things, Lord. One that we realize that uh, if we did all these things, that the world would uh, see the light of Christ living amongst us. And Lord, that we know that we can't do it in our own strength. So I just pray, Lord, you help prompt us in our hearts to see what it is at this time in our life that is keeping us, uh, that we are holding back, not surrendering to you. And Lord, help us to see how we can just give it up to you. Help us to trust you more, to love you more, and to obey you more, because we know this ultimately brings you the most glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.